Hello and welcome to the Transfer Window, the podcast that brings you the news before it becomes news, as well as the insight and debate that you're all talking about in football. I think you'll all agree, those who are regular listeners, that we have fulfilled that uh, promise to you throughout this window. Of course, the transfer window in England has now closed. However, elsewhere in the UK and in Europe, it remains open until September 2nd. So we've got a lot of stuff coming in the next few weeks, which will still affect European football and indeed beyond. We'll bring you some insight analysis on what's happened over the last three months today. Um, we're going to start uh, obviously with our transfer guru, Mr Duncan Castles, one of the busiest and uh, most of the biggest spenders, I suppose, in this window were Spurs, Duncan. Now, as we know, our old friend Daniel Leverage likes to leave it late, not necessarily the um, choice that his managers would make, but they did do some decent business, um, but missed out on Paulo Dybala, but did get Giovanni Lo Celso, Ryan Sissignon, and of course, Tandy Ndombele as well. Would you say that's been a good window for Spurs? And tell us a little bit about why Lo Celso ended up being a loan for the initial year uh, rather than a straightforward purchase. Yeah, I've been going through the numbers and obviously with the with transfer fee numbers just after the window closes, there's you, you can never get exact uh, figures. I think the best figures come from um, a Swiss academic institute, uh, CIES Football Observatory. They're the ones I put most trust in. We'll, we'll see them uh, in the coming weeks. Um, and I get a better idea of gross spends in particular uh, and net spends at the Premier League clubs. But looking at them and checking the numbers out there, I have Tottenham as spending the most of any English club, both gross and net, uh, in the transfer window, just marginally above Manchester United and Manchester City, but above net nevertheless. And um, you need to factor in there the low Celso deal, uh, which was presented eventually as a loan um, by the club, but was it's a loan with an obligatory option to buy total value sixty million euros, as we uh, as we told you last week. Um, Betis are briefing uh, their reporters. The reason they structured it as an initial loan was to try and uh, basically do Paris Saint Germain out of uh, some of the percentage uh, profit they are due on his transfer uh, as a result of the the deal. Betis did with PSG um, to first take him on loan for a season last season and then have the option to convert it into a transfer, which they did when they knew Tottenham and other clubs wanted to sign the player. They also say that that structure is being used um, to uh, reduce the uh, amount of FIFA-mandated solidarity payments that they have to pay to Los Elsos. Uh, previous clubs. Um, it sounds quite a tricky little move. Um, I can tell you that people in Spain who work with the club don't believe that that will work and question the legality of it. Um, for Spurs purposes, it's actually irrelevant. They get the player at the price uh, they agreed with Betis. Um, and I think more importantly, um, go some way towards satisfying Maurizio Pochettino's demands for um, a lot of new players in this window. We told you he was looking for two central midfielders, um, a number 10, uh, another player for the attack and two full backs. 
what he got was the number 10 in Lo Celso, um, the central midfielder, and then Dombele. Didn't get Bruno Fernandes. Um, as we told you, uh, Tottenham uh, refused to go any higher on their bids for that player. Um, I've uh, learned in the, the last couple of days that Tottenham were initially told that they could get Bruno Fernandes for 45 million euros by his agent, his brother-in-law. Um, that was completely unrealistic. In the end, uh, Sporting were asking 80 million euros, as we uh, as we told you uh, the day before deadline. Tottenham refused to go there. The player um, is still at Sporting and waiting to see if a deal can be arranged with another European club for him this summer. Um, they also got Ryan Sessegnon from Fulham. That was an interesting deal in that it went down to the wire despite an expectation that it would be uh, agreed in, on the morning of deadline day. Fulham uh, took it uh, basically as late as they could. Um, Daniel Levy, as is Daniel Levy's way, was trying to get the fee down from the £25 million, um, basic that uh, Fulham were asking. Um, Fulham's uh, guidance says that they got £25 million guaranteed with bonuses up to £30 million on the deal, plus uh, Josh Onoma, the midfielder, uh, taught the midfielder as part of that transaction. Um, so uh, they, I think they're quite proud that they've, uh, they've managed to get the money they wanted and, uh, and managed to stop Daniel Levy from uh, bullying them into selling uh, their prime asset uh, for less money than they wanted to get for him, what they felt he was worth. Um, another um, interesting Daniel Levy move I'm, I'm hearing from the Barcelona end is that uh, when trying uh, to get Philippe Coutinho on loan, um, an opportunity was presented to them because Barcelona were desperate to shift the player off the wage bill because of salary cap issues in order to facilitate the signing of Neymar, something again we talked about in the last podcast. A deal, I'm told, by Barcelona was agreed on um, the loan fee and the payment of the wages for Coutinho. And then Daniel Levy came back and said, actually, I want to renegotiate that lower cost to Tottenham um, and uh, Barcelona then stepped away from that transaction and Ian I think you've got some information on what happened with um, the probably the highest profile attempt of Tottenham's window which was Paulo Dybala's um, proposed move from Juventus Yeah Duncan this is um, I say strange but nothing is stranger than transfer window deadline day I don't think in terms of football um, I spoke to someone who was directly involved in the negotiation of the transfer. And that person told me that um, when they arrived for the negotiations with uh, the Tottenham delegation, um, they came with a very, very uh, simple and set uh, proposal for the transfer of Dybala. And of course, we're told that Juventus, who had already agreed um, the 70 million euro fee for the permanent transfer of Dybala. Um, we're happy for Dybala to speak to Tottenham and for a deal to and personal terms to be agreed. Um, when the proposal was made, uh, Tottenham delegation looked at each other in, with incredulity, <clears throat> as if to say, well, I don't know who you've been talking to, but this is not on our pay scale. This is not how we pay players. Um, the net uh, proposal was €9 million, Euros, which... Um, would be around £173,000 per week, which would net, remember, and this is very, very important, which would be the highest paid player at the club. 
above Harry Kane, who has, remember, received upgrades on his contract in the past three seasons based on incoming players and his performances. Uh, you look at the gross cost to Tottenham of that contract, had it been approved, you're going up to 11.4 million euros uh, minimum. That doesn't include national insurance, but it doesn't include tax. And of course, there is, uh, and it has been mentioned, an issue with image rights. Now, there are two factors here. One is that um, changes by Her Majesty's Revenue and Customs uh, some years ago with regards to footballers' salaries means that there is a cap on um, footballers' paid gross salaries of 15% that can be paid in image rights, effectively but not quite fully tax-free, but because image rights are global, it is a reasonable argument to make that a footballer should be allowed to earn those um, that particular part of his salary uh, outside of the UK. There's also um, an ongoing dispute with an image rights company based in Malta, where Dybala had uh, allegedly um, sold his image rights or at least agreed to sign them over. Again, not an unusual practice, especially in a tax haven. But when he changed agent to his brother Gustavo um, earlier this year, then there's a legal case pending in Italy uh, regarding that particular uh, deal that was made with the company in Malta. So I think basically Tottenham, who are a very, very fiscally stringent and well-run club, took a look at not just the proposal from Dybala's representatives, but also the potential legal implications of entering into a contract with a player who has a legal dispute pending regarding his image rights and said, first of all, we don't pay that much. Um, and so unless you're willing to accept a, a deal which is lower. Uh, and secondly, um, in terms of image rights, then we will comply with the laws of this country under HMRC rules. And that would be 15% paid to a wherever you want it to be paid a company and again usually as a tax haven uh, and that's absolutely you know normal uh, in football that players are allowed to have 15% of the gross salary paid elsewhere um, so there's nothing illegal about that in terms of tax avoidance or evasion and the player himself I'm told uh, was agreeable to moving to London and to Tottenham uh, he has spoken to Pochettino on a couple of occasions as we told you this week already However, when I asked this particular person who was involved um, in the negotiations, what was Dybala's uh, attitude now? And the reply was, he goes back to Juventus and if he doesn't get game time, we'll be here again in January, meaning we'll be here on the market again in January. Now, remember, Dybala can move to a different club in Europe uh, over the next three weeks with the window sensibly closing in September uh, everywhere but the UK. And Duncan, I think with the uh, news, um, which is disappointing for Manchester City, of Leroy Zani's ACL injury, maybe, just maybe, Bayern Munich could be a destination for Dybala. It would certainly be a club that um, Dybala's people would look at as an option of, of moving him to. Um, the, the Leroy Zani situation is um, fascinating one because the, the, the player was still uh, very much in prospect as a Bayern Munich um, transfer um, when he uh, when he injured his ACL um, playing in the Community Shield game. Um, and, I, and I think um, the outcome of that is going to be very important to the Premier League title because as we've, we've said in this podcast several times, Zani gives something to the Manchester City attack that no one else offers. 
in terms of his pace and ability to, to break down uh, defensive systems that are often used against Guardiola's team. They're not going to have that for several months. Uh, now um, and they're not going to have obviously going to have money to buy a replacement and can't buy a replacement so uh, Guardiola is going to have to come up with a solution um, that avoids losing too many points before not having Zani in the team and and I think with an ACL uh, injury there's also going to be a degree of concern as to the quality of the recovery because when you have a player who is has has pace as such a great part of his armory and the thing that makes Sani special um, and, and different from Manchester City's other attackers is he is quicker and he has that ability to, to break in behind packed defences with you know when people are hitting around the corner passes to him. You have to question how good the recovery will be and whether he will get the same level of pace back afterwards. We hope he does, but I've seen uh, players... In of similar types who are um, pace dependent unfair, but who where, where pace is very important to making them extra special um, compared to other players, suffer um, these kind of injuries and either take a great deal of time to come back from them or never come back as the same player and have to um, you know restructure their game to uh, accommodate for the fact they just don't have as much. Um, um, velocity over the ground and, and, and acceleration as they used to have. And the other thing, Duncan, that um, we've both had experience of speaking to uh, players at the top level who've suffered ACL injuries, serious ones, is that fear that they have when they come back? Because if you have damaged your ACL um, in a serious manner and you've had to have effectively reconstructive surgery um, followed by a long period of rehab strengthening the muscle tissue again in order that you can then go back and play at the same level. One of the things that you have to overcome is the mental aspect um, of how that injury affects you mentally, which means that you're no longer as potentially no longer as brave to run past your opponent um, because you're scared that that ACL will be affected by that acceleration of pace or indeed a tackle, given that it will undoubtedly be weakened by having had the impact of the original injury. And that's something which is quite you know, common in players who have that kind of injury, uh, Duncan. And, and, and with Zane, uh, he is, um, fair to say, quite a slight character in terms of um, muscle tone, et cetera, et cetera. Um, I remember Henrik Larsson when he broke his leg in two places playing for Celtic, having a, a steel metal pin inserted in his leg, albeit that was ACL and bone. But then when the surgeon um, said, we can take the pin out now, uh, Larson said, no, that's my insurance. That's my mental insurance that this is not going to happen again. Now, you can't put a pin in for an ACL because the muscle tissue has to repair itself, but it's still there for you mentally. Yeah, and look, Manchester City have got a bad um, example here in that they, you know, they, they signed Benjamin Mendy as the most expensive fullback in football at the time and uh, he suffered unfortunately an ACL very early in his, uh, his Manchester City career and um, all that potential and obvious talent we saw how good he was um, even in the few games he did play for City has not returned 
Um, and you know, Manchester City still have a problem in the left back area because that investment, which was, I think, an intelligent one, uh, proved to be hit by the misfortune from injury. And you know, another another good example English from English football is Radamel Falcão, who was arguably the top centre forward in the European game and absolutely uh, impeccable scoring record, particularly in European club competition who moved to Manchester United after um, damaging his ACL and I think probably took two years to get back to the same level of scoring prowess as he had earlier in his career. And I think Falcon will tell you that he had to learn to play a different way um, because he, he had those two years in which he was trying to recover from the ACL. He was back on the pitch. He was playing football but he wasn't able to respond in the same way physically as he as he had been able to be before the injury, and he had to adapt to that and accommodate and change his game um, to to become an effective striker again. So that's the that's the unfortunate danger here um, for Manchester City and for Leroy Zani in particular, who's also left in a situation where he had been had the opportunity to sign a very big contract. Um, upgrade at City, didn't feel the money was uh, satisfactory and was exploring options elsewhere, had been allowed to do that, um, had this, had not agreed terms with Bayern Munich, therefore um, Bayern Munich didn't have the possibility to agree if he was Manchester City and, and, and you know, use standard delaying tactics in these circumstances, which players often do, to try and get the best deal possible for themselves and the best club to play for. And now he's left in a situation where um, you would think that both City and any other suitor will uh, will be very cautious about what they're prepared to offer until they're sure um, of the, the the likelihood of recovery from from that that uh, injury suffered. Now we will come back to Manchester City a little later in the pod, uh, so just keep listening for that. But it would be remiss of us not to um, address the situation at Manchester United. Uh, lots of you have been in touch. Um, lots of Manchester United fans have been in touch. Uh, they were trolled, Duncan, by a high street pizza company saying, hi, Ed, is the reservation still going ahead for a table for big signing? Or should we cancel it? Now, I said myself on Twitter this morning, is this a new low? Uh, having already also checked the odds on Manchester United's, uh, well, to win the league. And some bookmakers are going as high as 66 to 1, which by my sort of references and research is the highest price that you would ever get set on the Premier League era for a Manchester United to compete for the, the title. Three signings in, Duncan. They have a uh, gross spend higher than any other club in the Premier League. Um, Ole Gunnar Solskjaer uh, has been praising the club's transfer activity uh, ahead of their match with Chelsea this coming weekend. Who should we believe? Should we believe Solskjaer or should we be listening to the Manchester United fans who are exceptionally unhappy and indeed have been trending on social media, certainly in the UK, to the degree of almost 50,000 uh, tweets, which is equal to what transfer deadline day was getting. Well, first of all, do we know if um, our favourite uh, football pizzaman, uh, Mino Raiola, has shares in the company that was trolling 
Edward. <laughs> well, I'm not sure, actually. I know he had his own pizza restaurant in Holland. Uh, maybe, yeah, yeah, that's a good point, actually. I think we should uh, we should ask him, you know, I will text him now and ask. Uh, that's a very good point. As as uh, as the Kaiser Duck would say, he always gets a slice. Yes, um, and the other one would be, um, yes, I know Manchester United are briefing um, that they have the highest gross spend and that's been part of their defence of their transfer activities in this window. But as I say, from my calculations, Tottenham are higher on gross spend in terms of uh, fees committed once you factor in that low Celso deal, which is a guaranteed purchase. Um, and they are also considerably higher on um, net spend, uh, given the deal that uh, United agreed eventually with Inter, which was 65 million euros guaranteed, um, another 10 million euros of performance-related bonuses and a 5% um, sell-on uh, clause should Lukaku move again in his career. Um, I think I think the briefing from Manchester United, the off-the-record briefing about their transfer policy is the one that's that's probably damning here. Um, the, they seem to think it was a good idea to say that they're now um, going to turn their attentions to hiring a, uh, the technical director, um, the guy who would be central to transfer policy that they promised would be in place or that they intended to have in place before this transfer window. They're now saying they're going to turn their attentions to that. That is just pure illogical and idiocy um, when the, this was presented as a crucial transfer window for Manchester United, a, a chance to rebuild the team and the necessity of rebuilding the team, um, their intention to uh, change a lot of things, Solskjaer talking about how he wanted, how he wanted players out of the club who, um, who didn't fit his uh, his picture in terms of attitude and um, the the way they play the game. Um, the only senior player um, that has been moved out that you would expect to stay there was Ander Herrera, um, who they didn't they didn't actually want to lose and who wanted to stay at the club and who Solskjaer uh, described as vital to us. Um, they've had opportunities to move out players such as Chris Smalling. Uh, Phil Jones, Marcus Rojo, who was uh, trying to get a move to Everton yesterday, uh, hopeful of going there. Everton proposing a loan um, with an option to buy, United insisting on a transfer, pricing the player at £25 million. No surprise that didn't happen. Leaving Manchester United with, I think, seven senior centre-backs in their squad um, going into this season. Um other parts of the briefing, they're saying that it would always take more than one window to fix the squad. I, I don't think there's any argument with that. It would always take more than one window to fix the squad. But how that justifies only bringing in three uh, players to the first team and uh, not dealing with midfield, for example, which is a, a central uh, area of concern. Um when uh, you could have done, easily have done more in this window. Also briefing that the parts of the rebuild were giving new contracts to players such as Marcus Rashford, Anthony Martial, David De Gea. Um, obviously that Martial deal was done last season and um, I think ignoring the new contracts that are given to players such as Smalling and Jones, who many of the United fans would suggest should have been out as part of the rebuild. Um, and then pointing to uh, their you know, young 17-year-old Mason Greenwood's excellent pre-season and saying that um, 
the, the business they've done will allow Greenwood more opportunity to play and, uh, and a chance to develop uh, within the team. And uh, obviously that is correct. It will give Greenwood more opportunity to play. And Greenwood, as I mentioned the other week, is extremely talented and does have the potential to be a top Manchester United player. But I think there's a risk involved in highlighting Greenwood as a key element of their attack going into a season where they're expected to perform, where they've allowed the leading scorer um, from outfield play for the last two seasons um, to leave and sold him. Um, you hope that, that it will turn into a positive experience for Greenwood and help his development, but there's a potential there that will be too much expectation on the player and uh, a necessity to, to play him at times when he probably would be better left out of the limelight. I mean, these are imponderables, but certainly um, the idea that you go into this season with Marcus Rashford as your number nine, um, no experience backup. You can try using Anthony Martial there, but Martial has always preferred to play off the wing. Um, looking at those their numbers and their careers, the best Rashford has achieved in a Premier League season is 10 goals. Anthony Martial, the best he's achieved is 11 goals. Jesse Lingard, who I think will get a lot of game time, best he's done eight goals in 2017-18 season under, under the previous manager. You're expecting a lot you know, you're, there's no guarantees from any of these players. Um, they're expecting a lot of things to come right for them off the back of uh, structuring around younger players and, and players who Solskjaer has emphasised are committed to what he wants to do and the way the club wants to play. Um, it could work, but uh, it doesn't really strike you as, uh, as the perfect uh, solution to a club that, remember, finished sixth is way out of Champions League qualification, and the sixth finishing sixth wasn't an outlier for this this team in terms of the the recent years under Ed Woodward. Um, it's yeah, it's it, for me uh, they have not had a good transfer window. I understand why a lot of Manchester United fans are making that point towards the club, towards the uh, executive vice chairman, and towards the owners. The figures, Duncan, are very interesting on this particular window for a few reasons. And um, I know that you've compiled uh, very studiously, taking other people's figures into account, your own list of what the gross net spend is regarding the top six who finished uh, in Premier League last season. I do want to put this one to you, though. Deloitte figures, and we can't say that these are entirely accurate because um, they don't include payments which are uh, obligatory to in terms of certain deals, et cetera, et cetera. So let's just say that we're, um, we're going on the basis of uh, percentages here. But in the last five years, uh, the summer window has produced less transfers in total in the Premier League. Uh, in 2014, there was 157 confirmed transactions compared to 102 uh, in this, this window just closed. However, um, deadline day deals themselves have also reduced by about 20%, which suggests that maybe clubs are coming around to the idea that it's not the best time to spend your money on the last day. But it has been, crucially, Duncan, you've just short of the record spend by Premier League clubs in the uh, 
summer window. It's £1.41 billion this year, as opposed to £1.43 in 2017. As I said, we're careful with these figures. It tells us, I think, that the inflation in the market is very, very much a factor now, uh, given that you're getting less players for your buck, as it were. As I said, 102 players uh, transactions in 2019 compared to 124 in 2017 when the record was set. Yes, I mean, as we said earlier, you, we won't get the, the precise numbers. No one will have the precise numbers until um, later once uh, they've had access to um, financial records and probably FIFA's transfer matching system. Um, so these are their estimates essentially at this stage. So what you're seeing is that essentially we had an equivalent spend 2017 um, in terms of gross spend and transfers by Premier League clubs maybe a little bit more it will turn out to be when the when the actual numbers come through but not very different and yes definitely uh, an inflation of fee because you're buying less uh, less players for that I think one thing that Deloitte have picked out which is very interesting which will obviously stand up um uh, once the, the final figures are come in, is that the, the net spend by Premier League clubs as a proportion of their revenue um, is at its lowest level since 2012. So they're saying, their calculations are that um, Premier League clubs as a whole have spent 12% of the total revenue of the league on transfers um, once um, the, their sales are calculated into the, the picture. And I think that's showing how... Um, Financial fair play regulations have allowed clubs to become stronger as uh, business entities, and generally, Premier League clubs make money now. And the the rules that they had brought in, they've they've actually um, uh, modified them slightly this summer to allow them a bit more scope to spend. I think uh, the short term cost controls, as they call them, um, and 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 that's probably an indication of why they've done that because they've got the the net spend on transfer fees um, down to its lowest level for um, the best part of a, a, a decade. Um, obviously, you've got to factor in wages. And um, I think you, you'll see uh, Premier League wages going up again, um, as they have done fairly consistently. Um, and as they will, I think they will continue to do as, as the power of players um, increases. And I think... One of the key elements here is the is the way in which the power of star players increases, in which clubs, and we've seen Manchester United do this, um, not so much this summer, but certainly in previous summers, they have factored in the the media profile of a player, uh, the social media presence of a player into their decisions to sign those players, and and this has been something that's been ongoing for years, in um, in. European football at top level. I know that when Cristiano Ronaldo, for example, was renegotiating his contract at Real Madrid several years ago, his representatives pointed out to Real Madrid that Cristiano Ronaldo's uh, social media followers were a multiple of several times those of Real Madrid as a club. Therefore, he had um, commercial value greater, was their argument, than Real Madrid that did as the club themselves and expected to be paid for that, and uh, as a result, he got what was then um, the richest contract in the in the history of football. Um, I think it was twenty one. That particular contract was twenty one million euros net um, per season, guaranteed. Uh, a figure that's fallen far behind uh, the top level salaries that are available these days. And you know, you're telling us Ian about uh, Dybala's request for nine million net from Tottenham Hotspur 
um, to move there. And, you know, with all respect to Paulo Dybala, he's uh, never going to be on the same level as Cristiano Ronaldo. And that is to negotiate a move from a club in Italy who no longer wanted to keep his services because they wanted to raise money uh, to aid their uh, budgeting for the rest of the season to Tottenham Hotspur, who um, uh, are hardly renowned as being the most affluent of clubs in Europe or renowned for, for paying their players uh, top-level wages. So it shows the power of the individual um, and the way that uh, a, a chunk, a bigger chunk of football's revenue is now going on salaries and, effect, and going to the, the, the players, the performers on the field than ever before. So for our savvy and cultured listeners, because that's what you are, that's the feedback we get from you. And when we follow um, and continue our debates with you after the podcast goes out, um, Duncan has very, very kindly compiled uh, an independent top six, i.e. how the top six clubs in the Premier League finished the season last season with an accompanying gross and net spend so that we can make a comparison. So I am going to run through from six to one. And then Duncan, uh, I'm going to ask to just explain or pick out a couple of the highlights with regards to um, those figures and who has and has not had the best window. So we're going to include this in the quick fire round, guys, um, but we'll do the definitive at the end of the initial discussion. In sixth place last season was Manchester United. So far, £147 million gross going up to 158 potential, but with a net of £90 million as it stands. Arsenal, who are widely seen to have had a good window, have made an £140 million gross investment in their squad in fifth place. That's where they finished, remember, last season, with a £71 million net spend, again, as it stands. Tottenham Hotspur, very interestingly, as we referred to earlier on the podcast, their gross spend could be anything between 149 to 163 million pounds in this window, and their net is estimated at this point to be 130, which would make them the highest net spenders in the Premier League in the summer window. Chelsea, get older, this people. We all know you love to hate and hate to love Chelsea. 100 million gross, but a potential, and we have to say again based on what happens in the coming four to five weeks, potential net profit of between 25 and 40 million pounds. They were ended in third place, Champions League football this season. There you go. Who would have thought Chelsea, of all clubs, would be the ones to be in profit? And of course, factor in, they've got a transfer ban. So, you know, let's just give them a little bit of slack here. However, number two, European champions, Liverpool. £4.6 million maximum gross spend and a potential profit of £30 million. Again, based on potential payments over the next coming weeks and months. Top, Manchester City, double Premier League winners, treble winners. Well, it's been an interesting window for City, hasn't it? They've spent £150 million gross, but net of £90 million, again, based on payments that will be coming uh, in the next four to six weeks and possibly all the way up until uh, the following season. Duncan, we talked about the deal for Joao Cancelo, the deal for um, Rodri. Um, would you say that City 
potentially when you weigh up their spend and their recruitment in terms of um, augmenting their squad is potentially equated with their status as number one in that particular list. Well, before we get the complaints on Chelsea, let's just uh, clarify that that hundred million is Christian Pulisic, which I felt was a fair to include since they haven't had access to him until yeah. now, and Kovac. So that's the, the two deals they've been able to do despite having the transfer window ban. Manchester City, yeah. Um, look, if you look at that overall, what do you see? You see Arsenal spending heavily to try and restructure and, have, and having to do a lot of restructuring, probably not getting everything they needed, but being very clever in a lot of these deals. Um, I'd say there's a risk involved with Kieran Tierney, um, but if he turns out to, to, be, to be able to get back physically to the level um, he needs to get after uh, a number of serious injury problems, and they've got an excellent defender added there. And in getting Nicola Pepe, I think they've, they've uh, potentially have a masterstroke, potentially the best buy of the summer. It's a lot have they won money. the window, Duncan? Have Arsenal won the window with Nicola Pepe? I don't know if they've won the window, but they've won on that deal. Um, there was a lot of clubs interested in that player, and there's always a risk. And there's a risk of adaptation, but you, they are potentially a top, top forward um, for a good price. Um, and and do, again, do, but more importantly, Duncan, do we think that Arsenal fans will be demanding a trophy for saying they've <laughs> won the transfer window? That's a good idea. Maybe, maybe, maybe Sky can introduce a, a bright yellow. Um, we've, you've won the transfer window. No, I, I think they should just give, give them Jim White. Jim White should be the prize. <laughs> Um, other, also, obviously, Liverpool's lack of spending stands out. Um, they have, of course, done a huge amount in the last calendar year. Um, and, and notably, on top of the very big signings they made um, in terms of transfer fees, the goalkeeper, centre-back in particular, um, they have handed out very uh, lucrative new contracts to all, almost all of the players they value within the team, which is obviously a, a, a great um, strength for Liverpool in that they have almost all of their top performers tied down to long-term contracts. They have stability. Um, there's an argument that not changing your squad is a good thing when the squad is performing well. We saw that Tottenham um, get to the Champions League final after a season in which they... Um, which they didn't change their squad, even though their manager would have liked to have done so. So there's a there's certainly a potential benefit to Liverpool there. But I think if you were to be able to get Jurgen Klopp in an honest moment, um, he would tell you he would have liked to have had additions to that squad if he was being honest with you. There, there are areas that needed improving. They don't have a backup, a proper backup left-back, for example. Um, we've talked again and again about the need to um, add more uh, creativity in the midfield. Um, you can sell that Oxlade-Chamberlain's like a new signing coming back from injury, but he's not that creative player. So they are taking a strategy which I think has been enforced upon them by the degree of spend they've made on transfers last year and the degree of spend they've made on uh, wages. Um, and we'll see how it turns out. And then, then you have you know three clubs pretty much spending the same amount gross. Manchester United, Tottenham, Man City, 
Tottenham come out just above the other two. I think the difference with Manchester City is um, they have spent most of their money on two players who will go straight into uh, the first team squad, um, but uh, are just strengthen their options in those positions. When they buy Jean Cancelo as a right back, they're not buying him with the necessity to have to put him straight in at right back because they don't have a good one. They already have a serviceable one, um, albeit that Pep Guardiola has his reservations about Kyle Walker, but I think most Premier League clubs would love to have Kyle Walker in their squad. And they're adding competition um, with a top-class player who now is the most expensive um, specialist fullback by transfer fee uh, in the history of football. Um, they've also taken Rodri, player that they identified early, same as Cancelo, identified early. This is the player we want to get into and improve our options. This is an area where we, we would like to have more strength. Um, this is the right player to, to bring in, work on the deal, get that deal done, pay the, the money required. Um, now they have the option of playing Fernandinho there or playing Rodri there. And they have the, assuming all goes well with Rodri, and generally they get these transfers right, they've got a player for that position for the next 10 years. Their squad structure is fantastic in terms of age range. Um, I think if you look at it and compare all of those teams in terms of who spent a lot and put it into areas that will improve, then it is definitely Manchester City come out as the one um, who've been the most intelligent and structured in the recruitment and strengthened from last season. The question, of course, in terms of who wins the title is can they recover from losing Vincent Company? What can they do at centre-back? Because they haven't, you would have expected them to do a, a high-value, high-quality addition at centre-back, which they haven't done. And then the thing that they couldn't um, uh, prepare for, which the, the Leroy Zani injury, which we talked about earlier in this podcast. But in um, a positive note as well, uh, Duncan, okay, Hundahan has signed a new four-year contract when there was certainly... Um, some, uh, well, let's just say uncertainty, really, over um, what he might do. Uh, he's committed himself to the club for the next four years. Uh, we should also say that Fernandinho, returning from international duty, um, has said that he expects to play at centre-back next season. So that's clearly a conversation he's had with Pep Guardiola, which is, I think is quite an interesting one as well, because it, it reminds me a little bit of a certain Barcelona centre-back who, let's just say, falls below the six feet <laughs> requirement for most most centre-halves. Yes, uh, Guardiola has been there before. Um, at least he will have added height to the team with Rodri. I think it's significant that Rodri uh, has come in and and, uh, and gives him, if Fernandinho plays at centre-back, then he has Rodri to compensate for giving him extra set-piece height. And really, how often do you see City's centre-backs tested aerially in open play? Um, it's generally not the way other teams are attacking them. It's at set pieces that they have problems. And we know Guardiola's key, a big element in his defenders is their ability to pass and their ability to take up the right positions in the field and create the game from back. And I think that's what he's thinking with Fernandinho. Is, um, he's used them there before and, uh, and he's, he's capable of, of doing a lot of the things he needs from a centre-back. Therefore, play him alongside Laporte um, in some of these games. 
uh, as and when necessary. And I, I don't know, but um, there is also the possibility you could use Kyle Walker as a centre-back. Kyle Walker has played there for England. Um, be interesting to see if Guardiola trusts him in that role and, uh, and tries using him there with Cancelo at right-back through the season. So Duncan's choice for best window in terms of quick fire is obviously Manchester City. I don't say <clears throat> um, I would disagree with him on that. I think the positions which have been filled um, have been filled with quality uh, and quantity is not always uh, going to guarantee success in the Premier League. Um, although I've been impressed by Aston Villa's business, um, more because they've got 15 players out of the club and recruiting 12. Um, I think that that's something which Manchester United would envy in terms of their particular squad. <clears throat> Interestingly, Duncan, um, with 25-man squads being um, confirmed uh, for the coming season until January, certainly anyway, in terms of Premier League, the fact that there's been over 100 transfers in this window means that one-fifth, so 20%, of the positions in the 20 clubs have been effectively filled by transactions made in the last three months. Not unusual, but it's quite a high turnover nonetheless. Um, would, who would you say has had the worst window? Um, and there's probably quite a few candidates for this uh, just before we sign off. Um, well, look, I'd say out of the top six, I think Wolves, again, have, have strengthened well um, with with some quality players um, and pay attention to the two young Portuguese players they signed from Lazio. Um, they don't usually mis- make mistakes when they when they sign Portuguese players and they've, they've got a, a grounding to develop them there. I think Watford have done very well too, hanging on to Abdullah Dakori um, and signing, managing to get a deal through for Ismail Assar. Um, despite Crystal Palace getting involved there with that uh, attempt Everton had to, to sign Zaha. Um, and I think he will be a good Premier League player. And I think um, the Danny Welbeck signing is an interesting one from Watford as well. With, uh, you know, you're, you're buying good Premier League experience and a guy can score on a regular basis. So I think they have been clever, but then we know that Watford are always clever because they run around transfers and they have very experienced operators in charge. I'd say the ones you've got to worry about are Everton. And I think if you listen to Marco Silva's press conference today um, and read between the lines, you'll see how unhappy he has been with what eventually transpired from a window in which Everton spent a lot of money gross. I have them at about £110 million of gross spending and they were trying to do Zaha um, right up till the end there, which would have added another um, £40 million um, roughly given... Um, that they took Alex Iwobi from Arsenal instead, who I, I like as a player, but um, clearly nowhere near first choice in the in the way in which they did that. Um, I think the problem they have is they've allowed uh, a, a key player, Idris Vigay, to go to Paris Saint-Germain and not replaced with the same quality. They're left with a lot of players that... Um, Marco Silva wanted out of the squad because the squad numbers were too high because they made bad transfers in the past. Um, they haven't provided him with a centre-back he wanted. We talked about Marcus Rojo earlier and the, the attempt to do that on deadline day. Um, so, and I, I understand Everton have kind of stretched themselves financially um, and borrowed money um, to, to do 
uh, these deals in this window and to spend more heavily than people expected them to. And if you don't satisfy your manager um, with your actions and you have him essentially complaining about them in the first press conference he gives after the window closes, um, that's, a, that's a bad sign. And, um, and let's face it, Everton have got one of the worst track records in European football in terms of transfer market activity since uh, since the new owners took charge. I want to give a mention to Leicester City, having sold Harry Maguire to the sixth best team in the Premier League, Manchester United, for £80 million. Pounds. Uh, they made uh, the signing of Yuri Telemans permanent, which I think is uh, I think a very wise and clever move. But also Dennis Pratt um, coming in as well uh, from Sampdoria on deadline day. Uh, there's an exciting, uh, I think, attacking formation uh, being uh, put together by Brendan Rodgers there uh, in terms of that club. Um, and look, I think a lot of clubs have made good signings. I think Harry Wilson to Bournemouth on loan for the season is also um, very interesting. I think Brighton have made some good signings in terms of um, backing Graham Potter as well. So, well, you'll obviously be swamped, people, with... Um, predictions for the coming season in terms of where clubs are going to end up and everything else. We at the transfer window are not going to do that today because a wise man once said to me, believe me, he's wise. He said 90% of what happens in a football match is governed by the selection that goes out on the pitch. We're going to wait until Monday. We're going to look at all the Premier League games uh, over the weekend and analyse them, see who went out on the pitch and then maybe, just maybe, Duncan and I We'll give you our Premier League predictions on Monday. Duncan, I've sprung this one on you. Are you comfortable with that? I, I'd, I'd rather wait till um, one month before the end of the season if it's okay with you. As usual, Duncan being difficult, but that's okay. We all know that that's his way. <clears throat> so we're going to wait until the transfer window in Europe closes September 2nd, and then we'll make our Premier League predictions. So you're going to have to wait an extra month. But let's face it, you know, the expectation building is what makes it most exciting. We're going to slam this particular edition of the transfer window closed. The transfer window in England is closed, but as I said, right at the top of the pod, um, Europe is still very busy and we'll be bringing you all the latest information and the news from transfers that are happening elsewhere and how that affects potentially clubs here who are playing, of course, in European competitions in the coming weeks and months. Please, if you like the pod, give something back. Go on to iTunes and give us a five-star review and we will continue to expand what is an ever, ever expanding uh, audience and uh, community, which allows us to keep in touch with you guys. If you want to continue the debate, then please do through our, tw- our Twitter handle at Transfer Podcast. Uh, Duncan is at Duncan Castles and I'm at Garbo SG. Thank you for your messages over the last week, um, which of course has been very interesting and exciting, given uh, the deadline uh, coming on Thursday, where you've praised us for the fact that we do um, get in touch with you guys, and we do obviously um, respond to your questions and tweets, and we will continue to do that, because this is all as much about you as it is about football. So, um, we shall see you again on Monday. Until then, through the transfer window... Thanks for listening.